This morning, we start a three-week series, a post-Easter three-week series on one of the world's most famous stories, the story of the prodigal son. Now, prodigal has a couple of meanings. It means recklessly extravagant, and it also means uh, spending everything. Now, both of those descriptors are true in Jesus' parable, true in this story, and frankly, and even then some. But the story of the prodigal is also a story about a broken family, a family that fractures, a dysfunctional family, if you will, and a father's incredible love. It's also a story about not just one, but two sons representing two different types of people who have both gone astray. It's also a story about the human problem of control, having to be in control. It's a parable that at first seems to be a feel-good story, but in Jesus' hands, it's more bomb than balm. Because this story would have infuriated a majority of Jesus' listeners. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British uh, preacher, said, This is a story about new beginnings, about hope, about second chances. Henry Nouwen says that fundamentally this is a story about the boundless love of God and both are right. It's an amazing story. And just speaking personally, I love this story because I was a prodigal. And I had gone to the far country. And I loved the riches of it and how God has used it over the years in my life. Now, there are three main characters in this story. And today we're going to talk about the prodigal son, next week the elder son, and then week three we'll look at the loving father. So grab your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. Turn on your Bibles. And we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke chapter 15. And rather, beginning, rather than beginning with the parable, I want to begin with the context. So let's look at the first two verses of Luke chapter 15. We'll put these two verses up on the screen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So the audience is being formed Luke is telling us the audience, and he goes on and says, but there were other people, people at a very different end of the spectrum. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there, but they were muttering that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now here we have the context of this parable. What is a parable? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So the prodigal son in the story represents these tax collectors and sinners. Today we call them secularists. The elder brother in the story represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We would call them the moralists. And the father represents God and the gospel. So what we have in this parable are the only three approaches to God. Irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Moralism, or let me just say secularism, moralism, and grace. 
Now, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to read the entire parable, but we're going to focus on the first part of the parable as we focus on the prodigal. So skip down to verse 11, and here we go. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, something, by the way, Jews never did. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. They began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he, heard, when he came near the house and heard the music and the dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Now what I want to do is I want to back up and I want to focus on three aspects of the prodigal story. His request, his repentance, and his return. Request, repentance, and return. Now let's look at the request. It's found in verse 12. We go back to the beginning. The request is, Father, give me my share of this state. This would have horrified all of Jesus' listeners, tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, when a father died, the oldest son received a double portion. 
And in this story, because there's two sons, it meant the younger son, the younger brother, would receive a third. However, this distribution in the ancient Near East only took place upon death, the death of the father. Asking for it prior to death broke all cultural and family norms, and it immediately shattered this family. Why? Because the prodigal is saying, Father, you are dead to me. I want your stuff, but I no longer want anything to do with you. I'm out of here. I mean, who does this? Now, what's even more astonishing in some ways is that the father goes along with it. In traditional cultures like this one, in traditional cultures, uh, such a request was high treason. It was major rebellion. And it would normally, under normal circumstances, lead to a terrible beating of the sun. You see, land and livestock were what made up wealth in the ancient Near East. And the son is asking the father to tear apart his land, to tear apart his livestock, really to tear apart his own life. And the father, amazingly, amazingly, he does it. Now, think about this. Uh, How do you and I respond when our love is rejected? Well, we get angry. Sometimes we shift into attack mode. Sometimes people are killed. Or we get sullen. We get bitter. And we harbor resentment. We harbor vindictiveness. But not this father. Amazingly, what does he do? He complies. So, and in verse 13, here we come to verse 13. The son leaves. He heads off for this distant country. And we're told he lives wildly. Literally, that means out of control. And he squanders, he loses everything. Now, Jesus' statements about that wild living in the next three verses, verses 14, 15, and 16, about him spending everything, about the severe famine, about working with the pigs, about him starving, about him being rejected by all his friends and being all alone, are all designed to picture for us what hitting the bottom looks like. What it looked like for him. Here the prodigal crashes and burns. It was so bad that he didn't merely live among the pigs, He wanted to eat pig food, horrifying Jewish sensibilities. Now, have you ever been there? I have. When I was 19 years old, I ended up in jail. And what happened there was just awful. And it was a turning point in my life. God used it for good in my life. What about you? Have you ever felt like this prodigal? 
Are you feeling that way now? Cut off in a distant country. full of regret, full of remorse because you've made bad decisions. You feel out of control. You don't really know what to do. The prodigal represents millions and millions of people today. People who say, I want to be free. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to carve this thing out. People who say, I want nothing to do with God. Now notice the elder brother, the moralist representing the Pharisees, stays close to home. But the prodigal, representing the sinners and tax collectors, leaves. He's a secularist. He says, I'm out of here. And Jesus' point is that both of them, both of them, are equally alienated from God. Yet God pursues and loves each of them. Each of them. And what's astonishing is that this pursuit of the prodigal, the father running to the prodigal, means Jesus is telling us it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad it's been. It doesn't matter what you've done. How far the country how deep the pit you've dug for yourself. Uh, No distance is too great. Uh, No hole is too deep. God is a God of grace. And there is always, always hope. There is always, always second chances. And this is one of the themes in this story. So those are kind of the components of the prodigal's request. Now what I want to do is look at the prodigal's repentance. Because I find it fascinating here and so very encouraging. And it's covered in verses 17 through 20. Notice at the beginning of verse 17, we are told he came to his senses. What is repentance? Repentance is coming to your senses. If you are in a far country, if you uh, wake up and you realize, man, I've really fumbled the ball. And if these regrets are gnawing at you and you have this sense of, man, life is spinning away from me. And while all that is going on, you want to experience the Father's kiss, then you must come to your senses. Look at how repentance and coming to the, our, our senses are put together in 2 Timothy. Let's look at these two verses. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Coming to your senses is waking up. It's becoming sane. But here's the problem. If like the prodigal, you're a secularist here, Uh, That means either you don't believe God exists or that God exists, but he accepts everyone. He accepts everything. He loves all of us all the time, and so our choices don't really matter. And I make that point because, therefore, in your system, your worldview, what that means is repentance is unnecessary. 
But on the other hand, if you're like the elder brother and you're a moralist, then what do you think? Well, according to your system, you tend to think, and often this is very unconscious, you tend to think you're basically a good person. And that God is pleased with you because the good outweighs the bad. And therefore, repentance is abnormal for you. It's infrequent. I, I basically got my act together. But Jesus is teaching, and I want you to see this, this is beautiful, that both moralism and secularism are dead-end streets. Dead-end streets, if you want to experience the Father's love, you must come to your senses and wake up. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me give you four aspects of coming to your senses that we see here. First, it's you admitting your brokenness, coming to terms with it. Actually, I like to say you own it. This is the rest of verse 17. It's the prodigal saying, I'm starving. I'm starving. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Both in that moment were lost. But Judas was unable to hold on to any truth about God's love, so he killed himself. Peter, fully aware of the horror of what he had done, the distant country he had placed himself in, in denying Jesus three times, owned it, admitted it, but clung to the truth of God's love, and he returned to Jesus weeping. Both Judas and Peter hit the bottom. Judas chose death. Peter chose life. And isn't this the choice that is always before us when we hit the bottom? When it's dark, when it's bad, when we're all alone, when we're feeling worthless. You know, so on the one hand, some of us say, man, I really blew it, and uh, I'm never going to recover from this, and I'm going to go to the far country. I'm going to cut myself off from people, or I'm going to stay in the far country, and I'm just going to remain distant because of enormous guilt, uh, enormous uh, feelings of um, despair. But on the other hand, some of us are going to get to that same place where we, we hit the bottom and, and, and we're aware of it, but we're going to uh, admit it and own it, and then we're going to take our eyes off ourselves and we're going to look to the love of the Father. And we're going to live and not die. You see, sometimes you have to hit the bottom. You have to hit the bottom. You have to wipe out like I did in order to look up. And so I wonder this morning, can you, can you admit your brokenness before God? Can you own it? Or are you living in the denial because reality is too painful? So second, coming to your senses means you shed your delusion of control. Control. 
What is the essence of sin? The essence of sin pictured here is running into the distant country in order to be in control. I mean, we do this in hundreds of ways, but I want to suggest to you that this control issue was at the heart of the prodigal struggle. I mean, think about it. He enjoyed everything his father had while he was with his father except one thing, and that was control. His father was in control. So he said, hey, Dad, I, I want my stuff. I don't want you. I'm out of here. And he assumed in that moment control of his life, and it broke his family. You see, in the hearts of every one of us is this dark, sinister longing to be in control. And we tend to think it's a good thing. It's how I'm going to get ahead. Man, it's how I'm going to advance this clause. It's how I'm going to be on my game. It's how I'm going to do this and this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we're completely blind, totally unaware to how much the people around us loathe our hyper-control. Because it always, it always pulls us into the far country. It's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's Pharaoh, as I said a couple of weeks ago, refusing to listen to God speaking through Moses. It's Nebuchadnezzar consumed with his power and his glory and his self. The essence of sin isn't just breaking the law. It can also be keeping the law. I mean, the prodigal in taking his inheritance didn't break a moral law. The essence of sin is saying, I'm in charge. I've got to be in control. And for the prodigal, control was a huge issue. So how about you? Who's in charge of your life? Who do you want to be in charge? The doorway to freedom, the doorway to grace, the doorway to peace is not in gaining control, it's in relinquishing control. It's in submitting to God. It's coming to your senses about the fact that you have an authority problem. An authority problem, just like the prodigal. So let me go on. Repentance coming to senses is admitting your brokenness. It's also shedding this delusion of control. But here we also see it's something else. It's you and me stopping seeking home where there is no home. The prodigal, verses 17 and 18, has two things going on at the same time. He realizes that he has no home. He realizes that he's alone, that he has no food, that he has no life. And at that same moment, he's also realizing that there is food, life, and love in his father's home. I have no home. There is a home. Now, what is home? Home is not ultimately a place. It's a relationship. Like the prodigal, we're all exiles. This is Peter's point in the book that bears his name, 1 Peter, 
when he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, we're all exiles. We're always longing for home. We're always traveling but never arriving because home is elusive. The prodigal, I mean, think about this. The prodigal left home to find a home, to find a place where he could be in charge, where he could call the shots, where he could be in control, and it destroyed him. What's home for you? Coming to your senses is realizing your home is with your father. Look at these words of Henry Nouwen as he comments on this parable. He says, home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. Yet over and over again, I have left home. I have fled and run off to a faraway places searching for love. This is the great tragedy of my life. Somehow I become deaf to the voice that calls me the beloved and have left the only place where I can hear that voice. And I've gone off desperately hoping that I would find somewhere else what I could no longer find at home. Anger, resentment, jealousy, desire for revenge, lust, greed, antagonisms, rivalries are the obvious signs that I have left home. When I pay attention to what goes on in my mind from moment to moment, I discover that there are very few moments during my day when I am really free from these dark emotions, passions, and feelings. Now why? Why is home so elusive? Because according to the book of Genesis, we were created to live in the presence of God, at least initially in the Garden of Eden. To adore and to worship, to serve God in all his glorious splendor and majesty and grace. Face to face in the presence of God was our original home. But like the prodigal, we rejected the father's authority. We turned away from him and we went to a distant country. The prodigal is a picture of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus Christ came to restore home to us, to bring us home more specifically. Now, coming to your senses and repentance means you stop saying, home is my boyfriend. Home is my job. Home is my success. Home is the party scene. Home is this. No, home is your God. Your relationship with him. Your ability to live in his presence. So I wonder, and think about this. Where is really your home? What are the deep longings of your heart pulling you toward? 
Is it the heavenly father or is it something else? And fourth, a fourth aspect of this. And here now we move to the return of the son. I want you to understand repentance isn't merely turning away. It's also turning toward. Toward our loving father. For the prodigal, it's recalling the love of his father. Now, this is verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. Now, let me come at this through a back door. Some people today say there can be no forgiveness unless there is repentance, right? I've I've heard this over and over as a pastor for years. So, John did X. And I can't forgive John of X because John hasn't repented of X. And so we spend years and decades harboring resentment and bitterness. And it's like an acid that's corrosive to our soul. Now I agree There can't be restoration unless there is repentance. But forgiveness is a whole different matter. The son, for example, it's illustrated beautifully here. He had a prior awareness of the father's love. I mean, when he left, the father didn't beat him. He let him go. As the son is reflecting on that, He recognizes that was an act of love. So now what is the son doing? The son is returning home in our parable. And while he's still a ways off, what happens? Well, the father runs to him. The father hugs him. The father kisses him even before. Now catch this, even before the son speaks. Even before the son has a chance to repent, a chance to say, I'm sorry, a chance to ask for forgiveness. And by the way, here this father is being totally undignified because Middle Eastern men didn't run to others. I mean, most of us as parents would assume a very different posture in this situation. I mean, most of us would be waiting, standing in a distance, watching this return with our arms crossed, thinking this better be good. You know, this better be really good. Uh, But not the Father. And so what is Jesus' point? uh, On this matter... His point is the love of God is not caused by repentance. The love of God causes repentance. The love of God, divine love, divine grace, divine forgiveness, precedes repentance. The father loves the son, not because he's good, not because he's beautiful. He isn't, but because God is good, because God is beautiful. Here, beauty kisses the beast. it's crazy furthermore the son has convinced himself that he can never be restored as a son so he must become a hired hand in other words he must work his way back into his father's favor isn't this just like you it's certainly like me 
When after we've blown it, we think, okay, if I do this or if I clean up my act or if I get this thing together, then God will accept me again. If I do this and I don't do that, then maybe God will answer my prayers. It's a performance-based thing. But it's never a matter in the kingdom of God with the gospel. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what Jesus has done. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who God is in Jesus Christ for you. Uh, life, the spiritual life, is never a function of perfection and performance. It's a function of God's performance, God's perfection for you in Jesus Christ. Uh, someone once said, If she has to put on her makeup before he sees her, that's not love. That's performance. No one, no one taught anything like this before Jesus. No other God or no other religion, I should say, has a God that runs after sinners, pounces on sinners, and kisses them. The original listeners would have been um, astounded at the deep, crazy love the Father has for sinners. You exclude them, you don't embrace them. They had no categories for this. So I wonder this morning, are you a prodigal? Are you struggling with regret? Feeling alienated, isolated, alone? Home, home isn't a situation. It's not a place. It's experiencing the kiss of the Father. Now how can this be? Well, the answer is because Jesus Christ took off his robe, took off his ring, and put on the rags of our sin. The rags of each and every prodigal. And on the cross, Jesus Christ clothed himself in our sin. And died in our place for that sin. So that upon making payment for our sin, he would cast the sin of all who believe into the ocean of God's forgetfulness. So come to Jesus. Receive Jesus. He is the way home. And when you believe in Jesus, not only do you experience forgiveness, but your past is forgotten. And the robe, the ring, the feast, the banquet, the kiss, and the home are yours because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. 
And we are amazed at this grace. We are amazed at this crazy love. We are amazed at the mercy and the compassion you have for us. We have taken control and often, so often, we have made a mess. And even if our circumstances are good and we're kind of plowing through life, going full speed ahead, on the inside, things are amiss. And life has become about us. And we're short with people condemning So would you open our eyes? Would you give us the grace to see the wonder of what you offer us in Christ? And as we worship now, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would express to you the wonder and the beauty of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.